This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. On this episode, we talk with Diane Lee, an assistant professor at San Jose State University in California. Lee is a multidisciplinary designer who explores work in print, video, writing, sound, code, and physical space. Lee talks about her research in personal archives, the temporality of digital mediums, how the loss of personal data can be an act of identity formation, and how she encourages her students to scratch the itch of curiosity. Diane Lee, thank you for joining us on This is Design School. We greatly appreciate having you here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So we would like to just get started by uh, hearing a little bit about your design journey and uh, how did you get to be Diane Lee? Oh, you make it sound so important. (laughs) The Diane Lee. (laughs) Well, my journey started, um, I would say, in high school. There were hints before that, I think, as I reflect back on my childhood and upbringing and things that I was interested in then. But I got it in my head at some point in high school, and I'm not sure how or why, that I wanted to study fashion design. Hmm. And so then I went to visit the University of Cincinnati, which was the nearest design school to where I was living at the time in Henderson, Kentucky, and had a tour of the design building. And when I got to speak with the advisor, the person giving the tour, um, I realized that, um, in fact, what I would be more excited about and what would be more aligned with my interests and what I was already doing would be graphic design. And I think I was also particularly charmed because someone told me a story about a student getting an internship in the Alps in France. And so I was like, okay, whatever I need to do to do that, (laughs) that's what I want. And the other attractive thing about um, going to school for design in Cincinnati was this um, cooperative education program. So I was committing to a five-year bachelor's program, but also with the promise that I would be able to travel and work and do other things while I was a student there. And the program is pretty intense. So you find out pretty quickly if you want to be a designer or not, because you have to really want it if you're going to put up with the late hours, the intense critiques, um, the revisions, the working and reworking and reworking. And so I just fell in love, like hook, line, and sinker. I was into it. And it became really clear to me that I could be happy doing that kind of work for a long time. And I made really good friends, um, not just in the graphic design department, but in other disciplines as well because of the foundations program. And yeah, it kind of felt like I hit the ground running. In my second year, I took an internship in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for a company called Thoughtform Design. Mm. And 
I loved the experience I had there, and so I just kept on going. Five years later, when I graduated, I was able to take a job um, where I had previously been an intern. So I started my career working at Apple, already sort of knowing the people there because I had done an internship there already. And then uh, it took me a little while. It took probably a good three or four years before I started to question, okay, what will I do and where will I go next? I had spent about a year at Apple after graduation, and then I transitioned to another company where I had been an intern mm -hmm. called Vanderbilt Design, um, which is a really small studio. And again, I, I loved the work and I was really happy working there, but I didn't really see a path forward um, in terms of what's next. What did you feel was missing? I'm not sure if anything was missing, but there was a lot of repetition. So I really enjoyed the dynamic of a small studio, mm -hmm. working with clients, getting to know their hopes and dreams and desires for their product or their business or, you know, whatever the case may be. I really enjoyed that dynamic. But after a certain point, you kind of you learn the industry that you're working in and you see the same kinds of clients, if not the same one year after year. Mm -hmm. And um I really wanted some kind of change, just a change of scenery, a change of pace. Mm -hmm. And the options that I saw where there was a potential for growth and, you know, being situated in San Francisco as I was, it seemed like I needed to make a decision about which tech company would I join. <laughs> <laughs> and, th and that's really what it, what the decision felt like to me. Yeah. I know it's it's much more complicated, and mm -hmm. there are many more options than that. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I felt okay. Well, I've had this wonderful experience working on brands for small companies, and having this amazing opportunity to work most of the time directly with the you know head of marketing or direct. Um, like CEO of the company, mm -hmm. um, where it felt um, pretty straightforward, actually. Yeah. You know, they'd come to us. There wasn't a huge, like, hierarchy that we would need to get through. Um, and it was a pretty good model for yeah. how, you know, a design studio can and could run. Yeah. It's like almost describing the ideal, like, client-studio relationship. Yes. Right? Yes. You don't have all the levels of hierarchy to go through. You're just dealing with the top. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, it was such an amazing thing because um, Michael Vanderbeil, my boss, had worked for 40 years or something developing those relationships. So hmm. I had the benefit of all of the trust that he had built up with these clients and the institutional knowledge that he had. And so it was a really, really amazing way to work in that capacity. I always thought that I'd probably like to go to school again because I like school a lot. Yeah. And so when I was starting to think about grad school, it really felt like either I would find another job to help me continue progressing, to keep learning, or I would use it as an opportunity to go to graduate school. And I was about 27 at the time um, that I started applications and thinking about it seriously. 
And I made a very small selection of schools that I was interested in. And I thought, either I do this or I don't. Um, I want to go somewhere that I'm going to be really excited about and really invested in. And so I applied to RISD and it wasn't really top of my list, my short list, but it wasn't really at the top. But a couple of my mentors from undergrad, uh, Kristen Collin and Dennis Puhala, who were teachers, professors at the University of Cincinnati, had said to me either in passing or very seriously that I should consider RISD. And so I did. And when I visited, I knew I have to go here. I have to do everything I can to be a student at RISD. It was so different from any other environment that I had been in before. And um, it did not seem to me like RISD or the graphic design program or the graduate program had any agenda for what I needed to do to be a graduate student at RISD or a set of criteria that I needed to fulfill. But they didn't really have like a box right. for me to fit in. Mm -hmm. And that felt so inviting and so warm and so generous and um, really the kind of place that I was looking for because for all that um, University of Cincinnati did for me and it did exactly what it was supposed to do, which was get me from being you know, a nobody high school student with no skills in design to somebody who could enter the field at a high level, it really did have kind of a prescription for what I should be able to do and the kinds of companies that I should aim to work for mm. that I was happy to adopt. Right. Um, but I was, I was looking for a way to learn a little bit more about myself instead mm -hmm. of what somebody else had in mind for what, what I should be or who I should become. Mm. And that was really exciting to me. Yeah. It's like a, almost a path to like exploring your own voice and design. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how I felt about it. And I had no idea what would come of it, mm -hmm. which was scary and also very liberating. And yeah, so that's how I ended up at RISD. Yeah. Not too long after graduation, I had a conversation with um, John Caserta, who's the department head, was the department head. Um and he asked if I would be willing to step in and teach a few adjunct classes. And it was such a gift because it gave me the opportunity to really see if teaching would be a path forward for me without going into it whole hog. Mm -hmm. And it was also a way for me to keep thinking about some of the ideas that came up in graduate school about, you know, what kind of work do I want to be making and how can I provide space for other people to do, you know, personal exploration, but also build skills at the same time. The courses that I taught at RISD were team taught classes. So I also had the opportunity to teach alongside more experienced practitioners and educators than myself. So that was another education. What an awesome experience, because I think one thing that we don't do very well in a graduate level is give that opportunity for young designers to have an experience of being mentored by a seasoned professor about here's how 
it works. Here's the the magic of it all, mm-hmm. and to have that opportunity to to be paired with someone. Oh yeah, it was really special because you also, when you're teaching, and now I'm teaching full time, I don't really get to see what happens in other people's classes. I sit in for reviewing others, but to really understand how courses work, that was a great way of doing it, to, to be responsible for a class with um, three other colleagues and to be able to see how they engage and the different outcomes that they get from their sections. And that, yeah, that was really special. In graduate school, what were there any particular areas of research that you really explored that you feel like impacted maybe some of the work you do now or um, some of your interests in teaching now or your perspectives? One thing I would say is where some graduate programs are less class-oriented and you are offered just kind of open studio mm-hmm. space and time where faculty drop in, RISD's graphic design program at the graduate level is structured around classes mm. where you you know sit in a space and respond to prompts with other people yeah. doing similar work as you or responding to the same prompts. And the questions were really open-ended. Most of the prompts began with a question or a word or a statement, which allowed for a jumping-off point that would take people into radically different spaces. And you would have to make these decisions pretty quickly about, okay, how do I use this prompt as friction to take me somewhere that I actually want to go? And um, I didn't really have a research agenda when Mm -hmm. I got there. So Mm -hmm. I was often surprised by the kind of work that I made. But I became really interested in the relationship between physical archives, libraries, private archives, um, personal archives, Mm -hmm. family histories, and our relationship with technology and how uh, the ephemera and the material of our lives, uh, correspondence, images, reflections even, Mm -hmm. they're migrating online into these archives that have the potential to disappear. To give you an example, one project that I made while at RISD was kind of a reclaiming of my chat history. So it was taking text from Google Chat, which was the chat client I was using at the time, and rendering it back into legible form. Because there is a program you can use called um, Google Takeout to reclaim some of your data. But it's made for machines, mm-hmm. right? So it's you can download it, but the file that's given to you is not legible. And so I was pretty excited about and moved by that because suddenly, you know, what might have disappeared is this, you know, flowing conversation over a couple of years was rendered into like a 600-page book. And wow. it started to help me understand how much information is out there, Mm -hmm. you know? And 
I, I, I would really like to have access to that. You know, it's, it's one thing to put it out there, but it's another thing to be able to, to reclaim it mm-hmm. and to use that material to help understand who you are as a human being mm-hmm. and where you've been. And part of this research was also visiting an archive related to my grandfather, who is a radio broadcaster in the 1930s through the 60s in Victoria, British Columbia. And I, it was really interesting to find that these recordings still existed somewhere because I think this, I would not have been able to learn about him or his life or his work had it not been for an institutional archive that cared about the stewardship of this information mm-hmm. and who had kept it safe um, since it was donated to the collection in the 80s. So it makes me question how we'll learn about ourselves moving forward and what the responsibility of these data companies is to us as users in terms of being able to read and use and benefit from our own data. It's interesting hearing you talk about some of the work you did in school because some of the topically, it actually very aligns with my own graduate thesis work that just centered in a different way. So I was very much interested in this idea of access to data. Instead of chat messages, I did that through music listening data. Mm. And so the idea of something that used to be very physical and in our homes and easily accessible to people kind of passively looking at it and giving a self of identity and who we were. And that used to be kind of a center point of connection between people. All of a sudden became a very private activity but also we don't have access to the data of listening to that or seeing what we're listening to and really understanding it. And so I ended up figuring out a way through iTunes to track that data over time and got a group of participants that I followed over the course of the month and then visualized that data and then used it as a reflection back to them and used it as a tool for reflection upon what was going on in their life and what that meant to them and then created these annotated books that kind of became these self-portraits. Oh, um, but was, it, was, it was kind of looking at it at a similar lens of like, this is something that we generate that we used to kind of have that we no longer easily have access to. And if we did have access to that data that is ours, what could we do with it mm-hmm. to improve our lives But I was mainly curious, similar to you, of like that point of reflection, which is very interesting. I guess collection of memory is something that is inherent in all of us. Is it that we want to be remembered or how we will be immortalized by looking at what it is out there that we have done or that has been collected in the past and try to reflect upon that as what will be remembered about us? Well, and I think, but it comes back to kind of where you started this, which is the idea of archives in that we used to have ownership of our own personal archives in the form of very physical artifacts. And now so much of our lives is archived away on servers that don't belong to us. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how long that information will last for. And it could disappear overnight. Right. I'm curious about that loss of data. 
and what's kept. Because I'll use a analog parallel. My parents just moved from Ontario to British Columbia. And so I had to clean out some boxes. Mm -hmm. um, and it was all the physical material of my high school years. Mm. You know, and what I had the opportunity to do was also decide what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to shred mm -hmm. and never think about again. <laughs> and that's a moment of identity formation where I get to be in control of what I have to encounter the next time my parents ask me to whittle away at my boxes. Yeah, as well as historian. Right. You are now omitting or rewriting the history Absolutely. Of, of who you were, yeah. For the longest time now, I've been trying to read the biography of John Adams, and he was a copious writer of details, of happenings, of journals that he wrote. And sometimes it was just a matter of like, went to dinner with Mr. Jefferson. And like, that was it. But sometimes he would have a lot of details in his writing. And I think about some of the things that he did not write. Or, for instance, there are moments in time in which, like the, the Treaty of Paris, and his journal mentions nothing about the signing, but there's all these other documents and other journals that were written about what he said then or what, whatever it was. There are things that we omitted from our history that mm -hmm. I think the digital age is getting harder to hide away from. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and in the same way, uh, his his personal journal was just as curated as sometimes we criticize our curation of our own online lives. Now. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. But just with a different sense of consciousness, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where along the way did you pick up the idea of writing alongside design? Because, I mean, that's not super uncommon. I mean, I feel like, but it's also not common. Yeah. That's an interesting question. It it absolutely happened at RISD. Right. I love writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I decided to do while I was a grad student was to get a job working at the Writing Center mm. at RISD, mm -hmm. which is now called the Center of Arts and Languages. And it proposed that writing could be a part of the artistic or design process. And I was really, really influenced by that. I adopted that as my kind of mode of being. And it's I see it as another way in mm -hmm. to understanding why we're doing the things we're doing and what we care about. And I think about writing in a really open way. And another connection from RISD is Lucy Hitchcock, who taught this class called Shaping Language, and it was about making writing and designing one and the same, mm -hmm. you know, that it wouldn't be seen as two separate processes. And so I was really influenced by that. One of the people who I met while working at the Writing Center and also through the graphic design graduate program is an amazing person called Ann West and she is a graduate mentor writing 
supporter, and she works with students across disciplines at RISD on writing their graduate thesis. And her approach to structuring prompts and creating space for people to engage at a deeper level was so moving and has deeply, deeply influenced the way I think and the way that I write and the way that I teach. And so I am indebted to her forever for the kind of space that she provided for me. And yeah, so that has really informed what I think writing can do or be for designers. So I'm curious about what happened after graduate school and what was that process? I know now you're teaching. Mm -hmm. What was that experience of A, deciding that you wanted to teach and that that was something you wanted to pursue and then the process of going about doing it and some of the work you're doing now? Being in the classroom and understanding the classroom as a space to explore things that I'm interested in by way of prompts and thinking of students as thought partners mm. really, really got me excited because I, I think that it all feels like unfinished work to me. You know, all of this thinking about archives and data and what is our relationship to our personal histories and what is the material of that I've reached no conclusions about mm -hmm. that and so going into the classroom has really been an exciting space to continue those conversations even if it's in really small ways um, because I don't want students to feel like I'm pushing an agenda on them and the other thing that's been really exciting about teaching is to think about how I might also start to create spaces for students to have the opportunity to do their own exploration into what really makes them tick. It's interesting because I feel like I've had several friends who were either in my cohort of graduate school or kind of the year before, like in that general time frame, who now that we're a few years out, I feel like are seeing very similar things of okay, I went to grad school, I've now been practicing, and something doesn't feel right. And a lot of it centers around kind of the speed of the work in industry right now and just the relationship that is involved. And I feel like you're kind of articulating maybe some of what I hear and sometimes also experience mm -hmm. of what's missing, and that's kind of this deeper meaning in the work, but also this, like, thought partnership of what can we create together mm -hmm. um, to keep going further. And it's really interesting to see and hear you exploring that in the academic sense with your students as well as outside, you know, yeah. in tandem. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important because the students that I've worked with are brilliant. And they teach me so much. Mm -hmm. And so anything that I can do to help them know their own brilliance and understand that, the better the experience is for everyone. I find myself often simply giving permission to students to do whatever it is they want to do anyway. Do you have this experience when you're teaching? Do people come to you and say, can I do this thing? 
Of course you can. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very surreal to be the one that has the authority or the uh, perception of the authority that I can free you from the shackle of I cannot do this because it's not within the scope of the work or because it's not graded. And to say to them, you should be doing this or you should work on that project Mm -hmm. that is going to go into the portfolio and you're going to be able to talk about it much more than any other project because this is something that you are passionate about or this is something that your focus is in right now. Absolutely. And in a lot of ways, that exploration outside of what you would expect from the initial prompt is what makes your work interesting Mm -hmm. and what establishes you differently as a designer and pushes your thinking rather than keeping you in the box. Right, right. right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also in terms of thinking about how we prepare our students to enter professional practice. Mm -hmm. I also think um, it's important to welcome that kind of experimentation and welcome the possibility that this student may not make a project that's a perfect outcome but this is actually like a perfect place for them to try something and totally fail at it Um, both for the experience of trying and failing but also to like scratch that itch of curiosity just like Mm -hmm. this is your space to do that creative work yes you may like Mm -hmm. I don't want you to need to ask for my permission because I want you to be able to trust yourself and trust your curiosity and trust your instinct that it's going to lead you to an interesting place. Well, we're almost out of time um, with you, Diane, and I'm wondering if we could uh, end the show with some recommendations uh, from you. So uh, the first one that I usually like to ask, because we are in San Francisco this season, what would be something that we should see while we're in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. I would wholeheartedly recommend a visit to the Letterform Archive. It's a very special place with tons of printed matter um, spanning time and space. And it's a really, really fun place to go. Um, So I would encourage you to spend the time and visit. I'm always curious about, um, speaking of writing, Mm -hmm. what people are reading. Is there a book or an article or an audiobook, if you're a listener, that you've read recently that you felt made an impact on you, doesn't have to be design-related or anything like that, but made an impact on you and your thinking that you feel deserves more attention? Well, I'm currently reading a book called Chasing the Perfect by Natalia Ilian, mm-hmm. who's also in Seattle, I think. Mm-hmm. And I've really, really enjoyed reading this book it's a bit of a reflection on the lasting impacts of modernism. And I would have loved to encounter this book in 2012 and or 13. <laughs> but it's she's a beautiful writer, and um, it's such a pleasant and easy read um, while taking on very like big topics. Um, so I'd highly recommend that book. I think there's also something exciting and interesting in books unread 
you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like what I hope to read but haven't read yet because yeah. every time I pick it up, it just feels too heavy. Yeah. Um, so That's my John Adams book right there. Yes. <laughs> so at the beginning of the summer, I bought The Dark Age, The New Dark Age. I should know the title, but I haven't read it yet. It's a book by James Bridle about our relationship to the tech that surrounds us and data and the infrastructure that supports it. But it's a heavy one. So mm-hmm. I haven't, I've read the first chapter like three times. Yeah. My uh, second recommendation would be uh, I'm interested in getting my students to do these types of writing prompts. What would you recommend? How would you recommend I start? Mm. Maybe a, a good writing prompt to start with. Mm. Well, this one I learned from a colleague at San Jose State who teaches in the English department. And um, I think she calls it writing for full presence. And I may have misinterpreted, but the way I use this prompt in my classes is to just set aside five minutes when students arrive in your class just to write whatever it is that's on their mind in that moment. Sometimes it's list making, you know, sometimes, oh, because I also participate in this because I want to arrive with the same presence that I'm asking of my students. So often I'm coming from a faculty meeting or whatever the case may be, an advising appointment. And until I sit and write a couple of things down, I'm still occupying whatever that space was that I've just left. So I invite students to share what they've written um, if they feel comfortable, but often they don't. And every now and then I'll share what I've written so they have an idea of what's going on with me. And sometimes I don't. But worst case scenario, it's five minutes at the beginning of class just to like breathe before we dive into the next thing. And it's one that I really like. It's really easy to implement. That's a great idea. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really going to do that. I am. Yeah, let me know how it goes. I will, yeah. My last one, which I may not have hinted at before, but maybe through my thesis work, I, I love music. So I'm always curious about what people are listening to these days. Um, I always laugh because there's like the conscientious listening Mm -hmm. and then like the listening that happens because that's just what I really need. Yeah. And so what I've been listening to mostly lately, conscientiously, is the most recent Bon Iver album. Uh, Yeah. You and me both. (laughs) But what I'm listening to, you know, for like just the pleasure of it is, um, a playlist I've been working on with songs from the 70s, mostly female singer-songwriters. So there's a lot of Carole King and Joni Mitchell on there. Do you plan on publishing it through, I I don't know if you use Spotify or if you use... It's on Spotify. It's on Spotify. If you care to have a look. Yeah. Well, Diane, thank you so much. Uh, We greatly appreciate your time and um, what a fascinating... um, conversation and some very helpful tips, especially uh, as we go into the next uh, academic year. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation too. Yeah. Thank you. 
This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each of our episodes, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to hear on the show. Follow the podcast on Twitter at TIDS Podcast or join the Facebook page. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Stay safe, stay healthy, and bye for now.